The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Media Talk with me, John Plunkett. On this week's show, double trouble at the BBC as controversy rages over the £60 million payouts to former senior managers and Helen Bowden admits to a deep liberal bias of BBC News. Also this week, News Corporation is reborn with the launch of the newly devolved publishing division of Rupert Murdoch's Global Empire. Plus, Channel 4 gets Daily Mail backs up. Well, that's what it's there for, with its plans to air the Muslim call to prayer live every morning during Ramadan. And we talk everything small screen with The Guardian's TV editor, Rebecca Nicholson. You're listening to Media Talk from The Guardian. And I'm joined this week by Matt Deegan, Creative Director of Radio and Digital Consultancy Folder Media, and by The Media Guardian's very own Josh Halliday. Welcome both. Hello. Hello. Now, two out of the three people here went to Glastonbury. Yes. How was it, chaps? I'm, I'm a broken man, I don't know about <laughs> you, but yeah, I'm starting to feel slightly uh, like my usual self, but it took a while to get around there. It is uh, a big, it's a lot of walking. If you go to Glastonbury, there's a lot of walking from place to place. Yeah. Uh, a lot of bands to see and a lot of other stuff going on. But, um, and yeah. your, your highlight, respectively? Oh, my, my guidebook is full of bands that I never got to see, which is really annoying. Low Light was probably the Rolling Stones being stuck in the worst position in the possible arena. The highlight was the XX headline on the other stage. Um, I'm not a massive hipster, usually, but they were brilliant. They, they were incredible. Uh, Mr. Deegan? I really liked Jesse Ware um, in the John Peel tent. It was very good. And also, some of the non-music stuff is amazing at Glastonbury, and they had a thing called Block 9, uh, which oh, yeah. was a phenomenal installation they built uh, like a New York street, and they built a 70s uh, tower block that both looked perfect, that had kind of clubs inside. Just amazing. Unlike you two, I watched it at home. Uh, but I tell you, I was impressed. Uh, a big shout out, as they say in the 1980s radio circles, to uh, Greg James, who I thought was really good on BBC Three. Almost kind of over smooth, but, you know, uh, for, uh, as a live presenter, I thought uh, he did a fantastic job. I mean, I think they're really building him up as um, the next big thing for Radio One. And obviously, there was talk about him and, and the Breakfast Show. Well, actually, he needs a good couple of years across lots of platforms, TV and radio, to really grow. And I think he's really doing that. The other person that did really well, I thought, watching some of the, the iPlayer coverage, uh, was Jen Long, who's one of Radio One's evening presenters. Uh, very real, very into the music, and a really fun person to see on the telly. OK, well, sticking with the BBC, the corporation was criticised this week by the public spending watchdog, the National Audit Office, over some of the big money payouts it's been handing out to former management. Some £60 million has been doled out to around 400 senior executives over the last eight years, including, notoriously, you might remember, the £949,000 given to former Deputy DG Mark Byford and the £475,000 payout to George Entwistle after just 54 days as DG last year. In many of the cases, the NAO found out, the BBC paid out rather more than they were contractually obliged to. In one case, nearly three times as much. But... There was a good news story here, or at least an interesting news story, which was the BBC's former Director of Archive Content, also ex-controller of BBC Two and BBC Four, Roly Keating, carved himself out a unique place in BBC history by handing back his 375k payout after the NAO branded the award seriously deficient. Even better, he wrote them a cheque. Josh, what did you make of all this? I think it's fantastic. It's a fresh headache, isn't it, for um, poor Tony Hall, who came in. Um, a fresh breath of air for the BBC, you know, putting all the, the controversies of the past behind him. And yet it's scandal after scandal after scandal that he's had to deal with. And, you know, you've got to feel sorry for Tony Hall because he's having to answer for the failings of, of past management. Uh, at least one, uh, Mark Thompson, who's not there anymore. Uh, there are still questions to be answered in HR, I think, at the BBC, how this was allowed to go on for so long. 
I mean, Tony Hall has now said that he'll put a cap on uh, of 150 grand on severance payments going forward, which I think is a is a start. But they really need to come out and and push these former BBC execs uh, to give some of the money back. You know, it was a canny PR move by Roller Keating, and it leaves some of the others in a slightly uncomfortable position because I'm sure the BBC could do with that money, but I'm not sure whether some of the execs could. But if it's in your contract, if it's in your contract and um, you, know, you signed on probably at a lower salary rate than you could do in the commercial sector, is that you knew you pre-built this in as, as part of what would happen in your in your career? Is it fair to kind of go after that money again? Well, if, you, if you're in the same position as, as Roly Keating, which he wasn't in the wrong, was he? Whether he was overpaid or not, he wasn't He wasn't in the wrong. Uh, but he wrote, it, wrote that check back. I'm not sure I would have been as honest to be able to pop that check in the post I think I would be in Hawaii instead yeah. uh, with well, the telly off well I think there were two aspects one was that the, the BBC execs were contractually entitled to rather a lot of money anyway in, in, the, in the event of their redundancy but the second part was that not only that but they were then given more than they were entitled to by, uh, by for whatever reason whether it was sort of lax management or, 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 or who knows what I think the NAO looked at 60 cases in, in a quarter they'd been paid too much but Matt what, what do you think as you say they are, they are entitled to a lot of money and if you get that fair enough but how do you think these mistakes were made how did they come to break their own rules and I mean, what does that say about the culture there? I mean, it does say that HR is particularly poor and, and you would expect that when you're dealing with such large amounts of money you would be checking exactly what should be going out the door I mean there's a difference sometimes between deals to get people out of the business and people who kind of slightly more naturally leave the business and you know in the commercial sector if you've decided that actually you don't really want that person there anymore you come to an agreement over and above their contractor to, to speed that on but it doesn't even seem to, to have been that really just people an administrative error in their favour, collecting some some dosh. It raises questions about the governance, doesn't it? I mean, where, what's the BBC Trust been doing while all this has been going on? You know, Lord Patton, he you know he agreed with the £150,000 cap on severance payments, but he's been at the wheel while all these payments have been paid out and signed off. So who's been signing them off in the BBC Trust? Will they answer for themselves? And, and how do you improve this and make sure it doesn't happen again? I think... These are all questions to be answered now. But is it a management issue rather than a trust issue? They can't rubber stamp every single well, transaction. Well, it's a governance can issue. They? Should it be rubber stamped by the trust? Arguably, it should because they're, you know, the watchdogs for the license fee payers, and you know, it can't just be signed off by someone in HR because if they're doing a particularly poor job, as it seems they might have been, someone needs to be making sure that they're not doing a terribly bad job, and that would fall to the BBC Trust or the Director General. But isn't it their job, and now it's been covered that they? that they do that role, as it has been, because, you know, those NAO investigations aren't a surprise. They come along fairly regularly. Uh, yeah, and that was commissioned by the BBC Trust. But it feels, doesn't it, whether it's North Korea or the digital media initiative, you know, the £100 million fiasco, and, and, and now this, as you say, Josh, it's, it's a management error, but then it does always raise questions against the BBC Trust, and you kind of feel like, well... It, are Lord Patton's days numbered and, uh, and are the days of the trust numbered? But do we really want to get into another debate about a new system of governance for the BBC just recently after we got rid of the governors and you know then we got licence renewal coming up and we're back to square one again? I think the BBC Trust is in its tr- trickiest position that it has been for a good number of years. I mean, Lord Patton bats off this question every time he's asked it by MPs. I think he'll struggle to do that increasingly as he appears more before uh, Margaret Hodge and, and co. Next week? Next week, exactly. Uh, That'll be a blockbuster appearance. But I'm sure next time he's in front of Philip Davis at the Culture, Media and Sport Committee, it's always it's always good fun. But he's under increasing pressure to justify the current governance setup because clearly something has been going on in a number of different positions. I mean, in some ways, I think um, Tony Hall's in a, obviously in a much safer position. He's still got that uh, ability to go, it wasn't me, and we're sorting it out. Though for how long, I'm not sure. 
Well, two days after the NAA report, the BBC was back in the spotlight. Yes, let's talk about the BBC again. With the publication of a BBC Trust review, or the BBC Trust, into the impartiality of the corporation's coverage of immigration, religion and the European Union. In other words, three of the most sensitive areas of its news output. The report urged the BBC to avoid an over-reliance on Westminster voices after concluding that national politicians tend to dominate the views seen and heard on BBC programmes. But it was a comment by Helen Bowden, you might remember her, the former director of news who is now director of BBC Radio, which really caught the attention. She admitted that the BBC had a deep liberal bias in its immigration coverage when she took over in 2004, presumably less so when she left um, earlier this year, and said that the BBC did not take the views of lobby groups Group Migration Watch as seriously as it might have done. Uh, Matt, this is all meat and drink to the uh, Daily Mail. It is. I mean, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Flicking through the report, there was a, a general view from the author, which was ex-ITN chief Stuart Preble, who says that the BBC makes significant aims to get a balanced, a balanced view. And I think Helen Bowden seems to have somewhat ruined what could have been a, a, actually a not a pretty an okay story i think the westminster bias is interesting and probably could easily be found at itv and, and sky news i you you watch all three of the, the news channels and you don't particularly see any difference i think there probably is a a liberal view on immigration that isn't reflected by the whole country but i think that's a that's more of a, a standard media position than it is particularly down to the bbc yeah josh as, as matt suggested there uh, the helen bowden's comments aren't representative of the report as a whole but you kind of feel that they're going to be the ones that get seized on and so people won't necessarily be high high-fiving here at uh, new broadcasting house no that's right they were particularly candid and stuck out like a sore thumb compared to the rest of the report and it's a particularly interesting time for them to come out as well you know only a few months since she was shunted into the director of radio job after doing you know what most people think was a good job at at news but the unfortunate consequence of the Savile affair was that she had to move on she perhaps felt a little bit freer to speak her mind when asked about the BBC's past coverage you know it's a very sensitive topic for the BBC I'm sure she's not too bothered about you know the bashing that the BBC might get over this in Thursday's newspapers, but it was an otherwise healthy report for the BBC. I think you know everyone has always said that the BBC needs to get out of College Green a little bit more, broadcast more opinions on immigration from from the rest of the UK, and they might do that now. They've probably got another report coming up in five years. What do you think, Matt, about their efforts? It does feel like they've been trying to move away from Westminster in terms of, say, Question Time, for example, where you get Russell Brand turning up, for instance. But it kind of feels like they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. You know, uh, I kind of quite enjoy it when someone different turns up, but when it's Russell Brand, I kind of, oh, not Russell Brand again. But uh, I mean, you generally look at you generally look at the um, BBC complaints log and. There's a pretty equal mu- a bunch of right wingers saying they're too left wing, and left wingers saying they're too right wing. Uh, if those two things balance out, well, maybe they are in the right place. Um, obviously, you've got a big news centre now coming from Manchester with Salford, which has changed how Five Live sounds uh, and the kind of voices that they get they get on air. But you know, being in London, you know, we are connected politically to to service politicians really well, and everyone's got used to doing that. There are certain, and we all know in news, there are certain people that will always answer the phone and you can always get that, that, that quote from. I think that's a danger for everyone, uh, not just um, the, the BBC. Well, last word on this story goes to Northern Heckler in the comments on this story on the Media Guardian website, who suggested that uh, well, one person's legitimate interest group is another's bunch of racist fruitcakes. Moving on. Uh, the Daily Mail wasn't only angry about the BBC this week. It also reserved a big bag of hired dudgeon for Channel 4 over its plans to broadcast the Muslim call to prayer live every morning during the month of Ramadan. The broadcaster said it was an act of deliberate propagation. Job done there, you might think. Aimed at viewers who might associate Islam with extremism. 
Uh, apart from the first day, only the 3 a.m. call to prayer will be on live TV. The other four prayer times will be on its website, so it's not quite as radical as you might think. Josh, what, what do you make of this? Was this is this um, educational war or exploitation? It's a slight gimmick, isn't it? You know, Channel 4 is famous for its gimmicks on sensitive topics like this. But overall, I think it's good to see uh, mainstream interest in um, moderate Islam, which we don't see enough of um, in the mainstream media. And I think, you know, if Channel 4 only had views of, of Anjem Chowdhury, as it did you know, on Channel 4 News a few weeks back, um, it would be a real tragedy for the religion and for wider society's understanding of the religion. So, And also, it, Channel 4 wouldn't do it. No one else would, you know. So this is a broadcaster that that has public service broadcasting in its remit, and I think it's it's right that it should be doing it, even if it's a little bit gimmicky. Matt, what do you make of it? Because Channel 4 said it was giving a voice to the underrepresented, moderate, mainstream majority, but... I don't know, we kind of think broadcasting a call to prayer in the middle of the night when no one's watching isn't it's, particularly radical. It's a brilliant stunt. Three minutes at 3am causes no problems for the channel. They knew exactly what, how the Daily Mail would react and it gets kind of acres of coverage. I think there is, I think really that's the primary motivator and, and what they've done. I think the secondary motivator, and I'm sure that it, this, this isn't the stunt end, is it is good to raise those issues and to talk about that a bit more. Uh, and if it's a, a jumping off point for that, then obviously that's, that's a good thing, uh, but really lovely stunt that, they, that has completely run to their expectations, I would have thought. Also this week, the UK had a brand new media player on the scene. That's right, it's News UK. But if it's a new name, then it's a deeply familiar news organisation. It's the new branding for Rupert Murdoch's print interests in the UK, including The Sun, The Times and The Sunday Times, of course. Josh, this is an attempt to sort of put phone hacking behind it on a superficial branding level, at least. It is, yeah, and, and we've also seen the departure of Richard Caseby from The Sun, who was uh, the man uh, charged with looking after The Sun's response to the Leveson Inquiry. So it really is an attempt by News UK to move on into this new era where they're going to start charging for online access to The Sun from the 1st of August and uh, give people Premier League uh, highlights on the phone for £2 a week, I think it is. It's an exciting time. Apparently there's uh, changes coming up for the Sunday edition of The Sun, which sound quite bold, you know, given everything that that entails, the history of the news of the world and, and what have you. I think The Sun is trying to embolden itself as part of this um, new era of charging for online access. And The Mirror has said it's going to attempt to compete against The Sun by um, hiring a lot more people to work on its online edition. So they're really ramping up as well. It, it looks like it's going to be quite a fruitful you know, period, uh, last half of the year for in the newspaper online sections. And as News UK launched in the UK, its parent company, News Corporation, which is the newly devolved publishing division of the Murdoch Empire, launched on the New York and Sydney stock exchanges. Chief Executive Robert Thompson, former editor of The Times, said that the aim was to own the second screen, whether that's uh, football matches or the British general election. It's um, all about mobile, Matt. For instance, The Sun is going to charge £2 a week for online access. And it's not just broadcasters that are after this second screen territory. I think everyone's after this, this second screen. And are the newspapers too late? Uh, have people created their own second screen by their own friend lists on Facebook and Twitter and accessing that on mobile? And you get all bits and bobs like broadcasters' own second screen apps um, or things like Zbox. You know, they, they've got enough trouble. So will their second screen only be available to their subscribers? Or are they going to try and launch a free-to-air product, so to speak, on a mobile device? It just sounds like... It's a shiny thing and we make stuff. We'll be good at that, won't we, in our new shiny company? I think they've got to prove it before they can uh, say that it's the future of their business. 
And I was watching Josh uh, the end of Mad Men this week, or indeed last week. I was watching it this week. I've got a, this thing called a digital video recorder. Um, but they said at the end, why don't you go and chat about Mad Men at the sky.com slash live lounge or, or something similar. And I thought, well, why would you want to do that and get, uh, traipse off to a walled garden when you can just natter about it on Twitter? I mean, that's yeah. the uh, that's yeah, the big question. That's a big challenge. I've always thought that. I mean, with Z-Box, I tried to like it at first when they first brought it out. And I thought, it's quite a cool idea. You get little snippets of uh, information about the program that you're watching. And in theory, you should be allowed to speak to everyone that you'd be speaking to on Twitter anyway. But it doesn't quite work out that way. And it doesn't feel as natural or as, as easy to do as it does as if you just open the Twitter app or the Facebook app. I think we've all grown so natural with Twitter and Facebook as we watch TV that anything else now feels slightly late to the game, doesn't it? And I think the other thing we have to remember um, for TV people, uh, people care about television much less than TV people think. Uh, And actually what you want to do is you want to share your uh, views with your mates. You don't necessarily want to share your views with the world. Hashtags are great, but not many people sit there running a search uh, on their device if they're kind of outside of media so will people adopt these second screen devices i still think it needs something very special to make them do that and also this week alexander lebedev owner of the independent evening standard and much else besides was found guilty of battery in moscow after that punch up on a russian tv show but he didn't go to jail he will however do 150 hours community service uh, josh this was good news for lebedev and, and good news for staff on the standard and independent that's right good news for everyone in london i, I think it came as a bit of a relief after um, he was facing five years in jail in Moscow, which you know must have frightened the lives out of them. Although I'm sure that Evgeny knows the the, the keys to his father's bank account. But I mean, it sort of threw the whole future of the India up in, in in a little bit of um, uncertainty for a while. I mean, you never know what's going to happen in the Russian judicial system. Fortunately, it's come out all right for for the Lebedevs, and uh, the India march is on. And we started this week with Glastonbury, and we're going to end this part of the show with Glastonbury and the BBC's Olympic-sized coverage. Uh, now, I'm not, I'm not sure you two are the best place to come on this, thing as you're both stuck in a muddy field. Uh, I, <laughs> of course, am an expert, uh, being entirely sofa-bound. But uh, it did rather well, I think, Josh. Uh, 700,000 people watched the Rolling Stones, for instance, on the, on the iPlayer. That's right. Which Big figures. Th- unbelievably, it's more than Usain Bolt, um, than what Usain Bolt when he crossed the 100-metre line. Uh, last summer's Olympics, which, I mean, it's testament to the Rolling Stones. They certainly went uh, on longer than 10 seconds, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Matt, what did you make of it? I mean, they really pushed the boat out this time. They were determined to sort of make a statement. Yeah, I think it, the, the digital numbers are really stunning. At Glastonbury, I spoke to Sam Bailey, who was head of Slash Glastonbury for the BBC, and he was saying the the volume of consumption is huge, and there is an expectation from the audience that it is there. The Olympics has taught viewers that this stuff should be available and they pushed out to more stages this year covering that content on two bbc two three and four radio one two six music but also they made it an international program i saw for bbc entertainment as well using again existing talent existing infrastructures are push it out that way for for worldwide so i mean huge content factory and a lot of consumption surely that's exactly what the bbc should be doing well, I said finally, but in fact, I've got an encore because we have to mention it. Uh, Matt, the Radio Centre marked 40 years of commercial radio with a, with a 40-strong roll of honour. It's like, like a sort of hall of fame. Yeah, it's kind um, of the Radio Academy doing a 30 under 30 scheme for younger people. This is like 40 over 40. It's good. <laughs> More of this is what we need. Uh, but what did you make of the list? Uh, it is the list you would expect. 
they did open it for, for nominations and people suggested people. You know, you've got uh, one of the, the main uh, editors of IRN in there. You've got Ralph Bernard, who created GWR and GCAP. Avatar Lit, who created Sunrise Radio, which has been a hugely successful and popular network of radio stations uh, in London, as well as some people like uh, John Myers and Dee Ford and Phil Riley. Uh, and there's some presenters there as well. Um, and presenters who it's difficult to disagree with. You know, Chris Evans, uh, Nick Ferrari. I mean, people who have made a huge, a huge impact on UK radio. And a lot of suits, weren't there? I thought I expected maybe a bit more talent, but uh, suit heavy and lots of men, but I guess that reflects the radio media industry. I think yes. there were f- five women out of 40. Yeah, it does. Uh, but some kind of interesting women in there, including um, Diana Hallett, who we work with quite a lot. Diana, not particularly well known, sort of outside the industry, but she co-invented Rajar. She bid for all the initial London licenses when it first started. Has won more franchises for more people uh, over the years and still has a, a company that makes a, a great product that analyzes Rajar. Um, so actually someone who's a really interesting person to, to have on the list. Neil Fox in, Kenny Everett out. Now um, That's worth a whole podcast discussion, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, what do you think? I immediately look for Kenny Everett. I mean, you always kind of think, well, who's, who should be on this list that isn't? But is, is that maybe because he's more of a BBC man? But he spent plenty of time at Capital Radio, didn't he? Yeah, BBC man, not a huge amount of time at BBC Radio, mostly London, mostly at, at kind of Capital and Capital Gold latterly. Um, so maybe not the, the national experience that you'd expect for someone but you know it's always hard it's always hard to pick 40 it's I mean, a starting point for discussion as we yeah like and i mean the, the other kind of interesting uh, radio thing about people is that there's going to be a, a new radio conference another year of next radio from september the the 9th and tickets went on sale this week is that a matt deegan production uh, well you know it's a commercial it's talking about commercial radio i thought only fair to put a plug in indeed well more than happy to do so seeing as you already have done uh, right uh, my thanks to mr matt deegan uh, folder media and uh, tickets available now for that conference and to Josh Halliday, you got a conference coming up? I haven't actually. I uh, I plan on catching up on Glastonbury online actually <laughs> all <laughs> week, mean? all weekend. Seven hundred thousand and one viewers for the Rolling Stones. Anyway, thanks both. Now, you may remember a few weeks ago, Sabotage Times editor James Brown came in to discuss his digital life. Well, now it's the turn of broadcaster and Five Live presenter Richard Bacon. We talked about how he prepares for his show and his relationship with his 1.5 million Twitter followers. That's almost as many as me. But to begin with, he had some advice for time-poor people who wanted to keep in touch with the word on the street. I have this thing where I basically, this is how I consume tally. I have a short attention span and I like to be able to, when a new show comes along that's hot, obviously I want to be able to talk about it and I have to talk about it on the radio a bit. And you might want to join in on a conversation on Twitter. So I just watched the first two or three episodes. So Borgen... The Bridge, Breaking Bad, The Killing, all those cool shows. I watched the first three episodes of all of them. No more. And I don't care. I don't... I don't well, I, that's it. I don't need you to watch get any... hooked. No. Uh, I think if I had more time, I might get hooked. But I just want to see a bit of everything rather than everything of something. Does that even make sense? Are you the same with books? Uh, no, I do. Do you ever finish a book? Yeah, I know. I read books properly. But in the end, right, If you, that's very Tony Blair of me. In the end... You can spend weeks and weeks watching the whole of Breaking Bad, and I know it's a terrific drama, but at the end of it, don't you feel like you've wasted a bit of your life? You can't remember most of it. But you could say that about anything, couldn't you? Like what? Well, I don't know. I, I started the Great Wall of China, but I gave up after, after the first 100 well, yards because it's all the same. practical purpose. Well, um, getting from one end to the other and then flying home again. <laughs> yeah. So, no, that's, I, I'm very comfortable consuming telly that way. Just watch a bit. With The Bridge, I watched the first two episodes and then watched the last two. And 
<laughs> no, 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 that seems it's terrible. It's like some sort of but they have like a recap. Deficit child. It isn't, but they have a recap at the beginning. And actually, so I don't think I missed out on much. I think it was fine. I watched every episode of 24. That was a brilliant show, but a waste of time. I'm not... So do you get the cinema and watch the Better off because of the hours I spent watching 24. I'd probably be better off if I'd done something else with those hours. But it might make you laugh. Might, you might, might make you cry. Get a little adrenaline rush. The yeah. excitement of waiting for the next episode. No. You just get a sense of mystery. What the hell happened in between the two? No. I started Where's doing... that guy gone? The first time I did it was with Desperate Housewives where I watched two episodes. I thought, right, get it. I've got the, I've got the joke. I don't need to anymore. And I think I'm right about that. News at 10. Do you just watch the headlines? Well, I get most of the news from, my news from Twitter which is just headlines. I, I'm a news junkie. And when there's a big news event, and if you're in a place where you can't see the television, so if there is you know, a politician making a big speech, you know, if the Pope has just resigned or whatever it may be, it's A, useful for news commentators putting up updates constantly. And, and I like that. I like those sort of real-time feeds that you get. At, but it's also quite good as a kind of subversive director's commentary. So, when the, what, so what struck me, actually, was when the Pope resigned... And it was the same week as, or same couple of weeks as Horsemeat, was I'm on Radio 5 Live. And traditional media all treated the Pope's resignation with incredible sincerity. And on Twitter, it was nothing but a joke. It was just a joke. And I thought there was this sort of fascinating gap between the way that we sort of have to speak to our audience about it and the way that Twitter speaks to its. And I can't, my feeling is that Twitter is much nearer how people really talk about news events. I don't think people try and make as many jokes as commentators on Twitter do as soon as the Pope's resigned, but I think most people found humour in it. And so actually, this, I'm fascinated by this right now. I think people's reaction on Twitter to major news events is nearer how people out there talk about the news than we talk about the news on BBC Radio and television and in papers like The Guardian. So lessons for broadcasters and news outlets to learn there if they're, if they're brave enough to take it. But uh, yeah, I don't know, I, it's, well, it's a very difficult lesson, isn't it? Because I, I, don't know how, I don't know how you learn that lesson. I don't know how, you know, Five Live is part rolling news. I, I don't quite know how you could instantly start and subvert a story like the Pope. And you kind of have to treat horse meat fairly seriously, certainly when it breaks. So I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know what that lesson would be. It may just be that the two things coexist. Uh, perhaps they coexist very comfortably. But as I say, I think the way people react on Twitter to big stories is much nearer how people talk about how, how people everywhere else react to them. I still read newspapers in the traditional sense. I read a lot of newspapers all the time. I don't know how long they've got. Did you see that YouTube video of that baby who she was trying to... Her father gave her a mag gave the baby a magazine and it started trying to slide it like it was an iPad and squeeze and... Oh, open. the horror. And, and I just think you look at that and you think that's why newspapers in their current form might die. Because this new generation coming up, the first thing they're introduced to is the iPad and digital technology. For us, we love reading newspapers partly out of sentiment, I think, partly out of nostalgia. And the kids growing up now aren't going to have any sentimental nostalgia for holding a physical newspaper. So they have to die. I know, I know I'm saying this on The Guardian, I know it's not good news, but in paper form, they absolutely have to die, and they're going to die quite quickly. And we'll look back on this period of when people wrote articles that were then printed onto paper and folded up and put in a van, and then that van drove out across the country to a newsagent, and then a 10-year-old child went to a newsagent, got a bag, and walked each individual one to a door, which we're doing whilst we can get information instantly 
on our screens. I think we'll look back on it as being the most sort of archaic and anachronistic thing. I actually think that newspaper apps make newspapers better. I, I read the New York Times a lot on my iPad. And it's brilliant. And it's the fact that it's a, it, it will be embedded with footage as well, actual footage. The picture quality. So the picture quality in newspapers isn't that good. Whereas the picture quality, when you look at The Guardian on an app, is blinding and beautiful. And it makes you appreciate the art of, the, of newspaper photographers. So um, I think that newspapers are clearly going to die in paper form, but have a bright future digitally. And my number one recommendation would be the... New York Times. You're I sorry. also think as well, and I've got a few friends who are columnists um, who feel a bit threatened by you know people who blog, for example, that in the digital world now, everyone is a restaurant critic and everyone is a theatre critic. But strangely, I actually think all that does is kind of enhance the need for professional critics and great writers. Your trusted guide. Your trusted guide. So that take restaurants, whether it's Charles Corrin or A.A. Gill, actually, when you go through the amateur restaurant bloggers, they're almost all quite poor writers, and they just serve to make those guys look better and better. So rather than threatening people like that and traditional newspaper columnists, I think it, it enhances them. Well, Richard Bacon, thank you very much. Thank you, John. It's time to talk television now, and I'm delighted to welcome back The Guardian's TV editor, Rebecca Nicholson. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm, I would say moderate. I'm That's just, because you I'm, went to a large music festival. I'm just back from a large music festival, and it's taking me a few more days to recover than it did when I first started going to music festivals, which is a tragedy. <laughs> did you see Rufus Wainwright? I didn't, no. Neither I didn't. did I. I tried. I looked every single... The BBC's multiple platform coverage. And he wasn't on there. Couldn't track him down. I'm sure it's my fault, not theirs, but... Um, not everyone was on there, though. Yeah. They didn't do everything, but no, I didn't see him. I, I think at example. that point I was live blogging, as, oh, uh, as is the way to enjoy a music oh, festival did, in did a cabin. Did you Example? No. Nope. I'm fascinated by Example. I didn't. I saw Azealia Banks. That was rude. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm way out the comfort zone. So let's, <laughs> let's return to something marginally closer, uh, which is uh, BBC One's uh, top crime drama, Luther. Back for a third series or is it second but series? Third and final series. Is it? This is the last one. Not before time. <laughs> <laughs> I love Luther. I've got a huge soft spot for Luther. It's the most ridiculous show that is on television, I think. And I think it kind of threw critics to start with because people expected, you know, it's Idris Elba starring in a serious crime drama and people expected it to be fairly straightforward. And it's just completely bonkers. I mean, it really isn't straightforward at all. I went on set to do a feature with them for this series and the thing they all kept saying was that it was like graphic novel violence or that it was comic book violence. And I think that sums up the tone really well. It kind of looks beautiful is completely preposterous, is visually very arresting. But this episode, this opening episode, featured two of the most terrifying things that I think I've ever seen on television. And I watched it in the office, as is the way. Sometimes we have to watch things before they're on telly. And I sat at my desk distraught by these two things that happened. Was um, there a, uh, a, spoiler, a spoiler alert? But was there a, a huge was there spoiler a, alert. A severed head, I hear? Yes, well, through, through an attic roof. Um, but also a man under a bed. Doing so, what, precisely? So, 
it sets up the scene a woman goes home alone and she's pottering around her flat and you're just waiting this happens in the first two minutes so it's not that much of a spoiler but you're just waiting for something dreadful to happen she turns off the light she gets into bed she goes to sleep you're still waiting for this bad thing to happen then slowly a man just crawls out from underneath the bed whoa <laughs> terrifying <laughs> scarier than the fall see I watched the first episode and I remember the bonkers uh, kind of uh, female sidekick Ruth Wilson who I assumed Alice. was just in for the first episode but yeah. then I watched this, and then I thought she's still there for the second episode so I just gave up Yeah, I was one of those critics well, you, you weren't a fan of I was out bonkered <laughs> she's great <laughs> for the first she's time. my favourite thing about it but she's she wasn't in much of the second series and she's in the trailers for the series but hasn't appeared yet there's only four episodes so she's probably busy in Hollywood but I'm very excited to see her back okay it's the last Luther and it's also the last skins on E4 yes this is a strange thing it's they brought skins back for a last series but rather than revisiting the cast of the third cycle which was terrible it was really dreadful they've brought back old characters and beloved characters from the first two and now they're grown-ups and they've given them these kind of grown-up two-part films almost and this week it was Effie's turn and she's now working in an investment bank in London. And the cast is quite impressive. It's Lara Pulver and Caven uh, Novak both in it. And it doesn't really resemble skins of old. Obviously, they're more grown up. And actually, the, the kind of extent to which they've become world weary in four or five years, it's worse than me coming back from Glastonbury and realising that it's going to take <laughs> me a week to recover. <laughs> they're only young still. Um, but it's actually very good. And I think it's a similar sort of thing to Luther, where if you really unpick it and you really take it to pieces... It isn't the best thing that's ever been produced for television, but it's incredibly enjoyable and you can kind of forgive its flaws because there's something about it that's quite appealing. So I enjoyed it. It's like a treat for Skins fans, like a final fling. Kind of, but for older Skins fans in a way, I think it's it's sort of easy because I liked, I was probably too old for Skins even when it first came on TV, but I kind of really liked it and really appreciated what they did. And I'm a big fan of teen films and I felt like at its best it kind of captured that. And I feel like this is kind of, yeah, I suppose it is for those fans that that were there in the first place, but not the not the third generation fans. Just pretend that didn't happen. Rubbish. Um, we're a week late uh, doing this, but we didn't talk about it last week. Uh, Mad Men came to the end of a triumphant sixth run. It's finished. I thought it was a great series. Oh, okay. Started slowly, but they always do. And by the end of it, I thought it was absolutely spectacular. Some great stuff. Poor Peggy. Well, yeah, say poor Peggy, but right at the end... I know. Kicking back in Dom's office. But at what cost? Dom? Is it Dom? Dom. It is Dom. <laughs> Dom Draper. <laughs> that is right. I thought Dick and Dom for a second there. Totally confused. Uh, That's a mashup I'd like to see. <laughs> yeah, Dick. Yeah, because he was Dick. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, thinking aloud. Uh, yeah, well, if I have one criticism, which, uh, uh, you know, always searching the negative, obviously, uh, it was that so much happened in that last episode. It was like a kind of headlong rush. It was like they were kind of cramming everything in. And so many kind of, um, I was about to say, they were kind of. Um, tying things up but they weren't they were sort of desperately uh, untying ends yeah, everything's sort of unraveled. flapping in the wind I mean who knows what happens next time around presumably it won't start it won't pick up you know the day after this it never series. does usually yeah. does it there's, there's usually a pause but this is this is going to sound like a dreadful plug but this is when I find when I find recaps actually very useful because as you say there was a lot going on I kind of got lost I don't know where anyone has gone so Pete's gone to Detroit but has he is he going to stay in Detroit no I think he's going to California now he's going to California now see this is why I needed to and the chap who emerged in the lift at the end, I think he's going to Detroit. Yes. Uh, yes. I think that was someone called Lex Luthor, <laughs> who you may know from Superman. And Don's and not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere. It, probably not even leaving his flat. I'm guessing his wife, yeah. soon to be ex-wife, <laughs> might, might go be to going California. To California. Yeah. A so, lot happened. It's great. Happened. I thought it was a really good series. 
But the big split, is it? Are you a Don man or anti-Don man? Uh, I'm an anti-Don man. Or indeed anti-Don I think woman. It's a similar, for me, it's a similar thing to The Sopranos, which is the kind of beauty of that was that over the course of the entire run, you sort of realised how much of a horrible human being Tony Soprano was. And even though he's a gangster and a murderer, you don't really get that at first. And I think they're doing a similar thing with Dom, with our friend Dom Draper. Um, I hate Dom until he does that. Uh, this is the thing that... Uh, uh, he does so well. Uh, the actor whose name I've entirely forgotten, John Hamm, is that kind of little boy lost look when he kind of, you know, when something doesn't go quite his way. Have you fallen for his little way, boy lost look? And his eyes kind of well up and he just looks like a kind of, you know, six-year-old boy oh, left on the I'm corner. Oh, maybe I'm harder by, than you. You know, but uh, so he kind of melts me then. Yeah. But generally, what an arsehole. I mean, and it's becoming more and more apparent that he is, he's an arsehole. Yeah. It's going to be hard to, for him to kind of find redemption, I think. Do you think? I mean, and does he re- have remain, to? And retain the show's credibility, you know, does is, he have is to? Is that yeah. going to be the story? Do we really expect him to? Tony Soprano didn't. Will it end well for anyone apart from Bob? Apart from Bob Benson. <laughs> There's a man who works in the Guardian building who looks exactly like Bob Benson. And I only see him every now and then. I suspect right. that he might have made it all the way here. Have you told him that he re- resembles Bob I don't Benson? know him. Oh, I just keep seeing him. him walking past. And every time I think... Bob Benson. Well, if you come into the Guardian's offices, pop in and see if you can spot <laughs> Bob Benson and win a prize. Uh, that's enough for this week. Rebecca Nicholson, thank you very much. Thank you. My thanks to all our guests, who were Matt Deegan, Josh Halliday, Rebecca Nicholson, and, of course, Mr Richard Bacon. You can leave your comments on our blog or our Facebook wall, or you can tweet me at the ever-popular John Plunkett 149 Media Talk is produced by Mr Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.